Hello, good evening, afternoon, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly current events, media analysis, things going on in this crazy world show. And my name is Jim Dwyer. This uh, week, of course, there are, as always, a number of uh, events recent and current, to consider and discuss, as I still organize here, uh, but I am going to devote much of the program today to uh, our sort of ongoing Nixon-related considerations, it being the 40th anniversary this year of the Watergate hearings, the sort of uh, breaking of the cover story, and so forth. Uh, we're going to devote a goodly portion of the program to that. Of course, a lot of people on the radio, talk shows, phone-in shows, etc., are going to be talking a lot about the Zimmerman verdict, and I will say a few brief comments about that. I don't think really that anybody could honestly say that they were surprised by the verdict, uh, saddened perhaps, disappointed, sure. Uh, I really don't think you can be surprised, though, if you've had anything, even a casual glance at the history of uh, uh, trial verdicts with regards to uh, non-whites uh, at, at pretty much every level, uh, local, county, state. Uh, penalties generally tend to be uh, more frequently imposed. Uh, punishments tend to be longer and more onerous. Uh, and uh, persons of color are found guilty more often. It's, uh, it's a pretty clear statistic, uh, whether you're talking about just incarceration or a death penalty for uh, so-called perpetrators, uh, what really probably needs to be considered as the greatest source of uh, anxiety uh, here in this particular case is, obviously it's it's sad and tragic that this happened and that our country, uh, still a large number of people in the country, continue to be in denial about the fact that there really is not equal protection under the law for African Americans, certainly, and persons of color, uh, generally speaking. Uh, in uh, such cases as this. <clears throat> but uh, this vigilante uh, system that the Florida Stand Your Ground law seems to uh, open the door for. And I believe Obama said something briefly in comments that uh, we were a nation of laws and although we're not, uh, some people are not happy, you have to respect the finding of the jury and so forth. Uh, clearly, uh, a lot of people will have a hard time with that. <clears throat> but the idea that uh, anyone, and let's face it, uh, Florida has a history of getting things wrong anyway. Uh, <laughs> Homer Simpson uh, has correctly identified Florida as the Wang of America, and I think Bugs Bunny, if going back even further, uh, had an even better idea <clears throat> uh, regarding Florida. Uh, but this, uh, vigilante law that, uh, well, if you, uh, believe if you're paranoid or if you have some sort of a grudge 
uh, or if there's somebody that you just don't like walking by your house, apparently uh, in the right circumstances, you can actually shoot and kill them, um, regardless of whether or not he was fighting you or attacking you, which I'm, you know, some people believe was not proved here. Um, George Zimmerman and uh, anybody who would feel compelled to uh, pack a gun because they're afraid of walking past a person or afraid of that person walking by, uh, then you're really just, it's the chicken shit law is really what it is. Uh, I'm so insecure. I need a gun and need to have the right to uh, shoot anybody who intimidates or threatens me in any way. Um, that's not a good law and indeed uh, is very problematic. But, of course, uh, our nation is probably not going to uh, listen to reason on the gun situation anytime soon. Um, a lot of people have just bought right into, well, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct, and there's very little anybody can do about it. There you go. It's in the Constitution. Well, there's a lot of things uh, with regards to that amendment, of course, that uh, are not specifically in the Constitution. Uh, for example, well, it doesn't say anything about bullets in there. And, of course, we spoke last week on the program about <clears throat> uh, how some states are seeing laws that they've passed to uh, arm teachers, because that'll make things safer, um, being uh, shot down. Ha-ha, <laughs> there's the old expression. <clears throat> by the insurance industry, which uh, determines that uh, the more guns there are in a workplace, school is a workplace, as well as a place where children are ostensibly educated and protected. Um, of course, uh, when budget cuts here locally uh, mandated that uh, Ann Arbor Public Schools could no longer afford to staff uh, each of the high schools in town with a uniformed officer, that was uh, considered an education cut, um, not a, a municipal budget issue at all. Uh, why the schools had to pay for that uh, privilege of having a uniformed officer on campus, who, by the way, uh, when I was teaching at Huron High School, the officer, uh, the last officer we had there, a uniformed uh, officer, uh, officer Gold uh, was a wonderful fellow, uh, a stalwart, and uh, you, you couldn't ask for a better representative of a local friendly guy who uh, happens to be a cop. And uh, we couldn't have him at the school anymore because, well, it's too expensive. And uh, well, that's who should be uh, protecting children with guns is the uh, uniformed authorities, the professionals. Uh, let's let the teachers teach. Let's have law enforcement uh, protect people. And uh, let's take a closer look at this vigilante law, which is what I'm going to call it, the stand your ground law in Florida. Well, of course, uh, continuing instability and uncertainty in Egypt as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. <clears throat> but I'm going to move now to some uh, elements and details from uh, this month in 1973. I don't know if you remember where you were, but uh, the nation was poised on the edge of a television sensation uh, really un 
heralded uh, to that point in the country's history. Of course, later the uh, Reagan-era Iran-Contra uh, committee hearings would provide a very compelling and even more surreal and bizarre uh, daytime viewing. Uh, but the televised Watergate hearings uh, were really quite a shock for the nation in a, in a couple of different ways. First of all, nobody really expected that people would sit around and watch it. A lot of people were concerned that, oh, the daily soap operas will be, uh, you know, preempted and uh, it's just going to be boring old news. But the, the details, the performances, uh, because, again, uh, testimonies, hearings, uh, committee appearances are a kind of theater. And I've mentioned repeatedly, as uh, Dick Whaley and I have talked about, the Nixon tapes, uh, reading from Stanley Cutler's uh, excerpted uh, transcripts of the tapes and discussing them in past months, uh, that in many ways Nixon is performing for the tapes. He's at a great advantage, of course, because he knows the tapes are there, and so he can say things that uh, he's putting on a mask. He's trying to make certain appearances, and uh, not everybody he's speaking with, of course, was privy to the fact that they were being taped. And uh, we'll hear Alexander Butterfield uh, make that revelation in just a moment. But uh, there's so much ground to cover, of course, in a uh, Watergate consideration that uh, let's take a five-minute sound break here for... Uh, a trustworthy uh, fellow as anybody uh, could ever uh, sort of lump the uh, trajectory from its opening uh, stages to its bitter and brutal conclusion of the Watergate uh, crises. Uh, nobody could do that better uh, than Walter Cronkite. So we're going to listen to about a five-minute segment of Walter Cronkite discussing the trajectory of Richard Nixon's... The Fall of Richard Nixon. When President Nixon ran for re-election in 1972, his popularity was never higher. The most famous cold warrior of his era had earned acclaim for his diplomatic breakthroughs with China and the Soviet Union. Despite bitter controversy over his handling of the war in Vietnam, the polls showed Nixon easily defeating his Democratic challenger. But Nixon's political skills were no match for his paranoia. In hopes of gaining an upper hand, Nixon's underlings hatched a scheme to burglarize the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in June of 1972. When the burglars were arrested, Nixon approved a cover-up, which slowly but surely came unraveled. Watergate, Senate hearings. To ensure complete live nationwide coverage of the Senate Watergate hearings, the three commercial television networks are rotating the daily coverage. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. By the spring of 1974, the Watergate affair was a full-blown scandal. 
as televised congressional hearings gradually uncovered the cover-up. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. Are you aware of the installation of any devices on any of the telephones, first of all, the Oval Office? Yes, sir. Now, the tapes which you mentioned, which are stored, are they stored by particular date? Yes, sir, they are. And so that if either Mr. Dean, Mr. Haldeman, Mr. Ehrlichman, Mr. Colson had particular meetings in the Oval Office with the President on any particular dates that had been testified before this committee, there would be a tape recording with the President of that full conversation, would there not? Yes, sir. Nixon claimed that the tapes were designed to secure his place in history. Instead, they sealed his fate. On August 8, 1974, Nixon delivered his farewell address to the nation. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shaped the history of this nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. The next morning, Nixon made a final White House appearance. Steve Bow came up to brief us on the entrance into the Grand Ballroom, where we were to say goodbye to the official uh, administration people, the cabinet and uh, all the other top people in the administration, about 300 of them. And then he said, now the three television cameras will be here. And Mrs. Nixon said, not on your life. She said, after what they have done to us, I am not going to let them interfere in this last private meeting with our friends. Well, I had to disagree, and I said, no, we have to do it. We've got to do it for our friends. We've got to do it for the country. Then at noon, August 9th, 1974, Richard Nixon boarded a helicopter to make history one last time as the only U.S. president to resign his office. Back in 1952, Richard Nixon's checker speech harnessed the power of television to save his career. 22 years later, television was there to chronicle his political self-destruction. But, of course, uh, despite previous claims uh, that we would no longer have uh, Nixon to kick around, uh, he remains an unforgettable blight on the potato of American history, for sure. Uh, interesting, of course, uh, the from the media standpoint, uh, how some of these uh, hearings uh, created little celebrities. Of course, John Dean, uh, younger fellow uh, with his beautiful wife, his wife became sort of a, 
an item, a celebrity, uh, as a result of her appearances. Sort of a touch of glamour there. Uh, I'm sure as a few years go by, if we get to an anniversary program about the Iran-Contra, there's lots to talk about there uh, with glamour and uh, bizarreness. But uh, staying focused on Watergate here, uh, Alexander Butterfield, uh, who we heard from briefly in that previous passage, was, uh, of course, the person through whom the uh, existence of the tapes became known. And uh, on July 16th, 1973, uh, he testified before the uh, Watergate Hearings Committee. You were employed on January 21st, 1969, and continue to be employed until March 14 of this year. Is that correct? That's correct. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. When were those devices placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970. I cannot begin to recall the precise date. My guess, Mr. Thompson, is that the installation was made between, and this is a very rough guess, April or May of 1970 and perhaps the end of the summer or early fall 1970. Are you aware of any devices that were installed in the executive office building office of the president? Yes, sir, at that time. Were they installed at the same time? They were installed at the same time. Could you tell us a little bit about how those devices worked, uh, how they were activated, for example? I don't have the technical knowledge, but I will tell you what I know about how those devices were triggered. Uh, they were installed, of course, for historical purposes to record the president's business, and they were installed in his two offices, the Oval Office and the EOB office. <clears throat> and as has been noted on this program as elsewhere, uh, Nixon was not the first chief executive to tape record himself and others in the office. President Johnson did that as well, and there's some sort of joking talk about that in the earlier, more carefree stages of the uh, cover-up. But, of course, by the time uh, July 16th, 1973 rolls around and Butterfield is testifying uh, before the Senate committee, uh, the, the game is up, quite frankly. And... Uh, I'm going to read now from the epilogue to uh, Stanley Cutler's Abuse of Power collection of uh, selected transcripts of these very tapes that we've been talking about, the sound quality of which on most of them is is poor to, uh, to not great. Um, so clearly it's a, it's a primitive sort of system, but uh, in addition to Butterfield's claim that they uh, were meant to serve as a historical document, they're also constantly being used by Nixon and his performance as, um, you know, uh, well, his, uh, the, the way his lines are sort of delivered, uh, it's clear that uh, he's doing more than simply uh, recording uh, events. He's staging them and framing them in just such a way um, to appear in a certain light and to make others appear uh, in the light in which he desires them to be seen. Uh, it's... Uh, it's a very bizarre sort of a 
performance control freak thing. Uh, one can picture him like uh, the title hero of Samuel Beckett's pay, play Crap's Last Tape, uh, listening and editing, editing and listening right up till the last possible minute. Um, but it was not to be. In fact, next week I hope to uh, have ready for you some dramatic readings from uh, selected days of the last couple of weeks that the tape system was in existence. There's some remarkable uh, revelations, not just of uh, information and details regarding the cover-up and who knew what and uh, who we can expect to be stabbed in the back by and so forth, uh, but just uh, psychological details emerge, which really do uh, make Nixon, uh, whatever you feel about his record as a president, uh, one of the more psychologically complex public figures I, I think uh, you could ever imagine. It's been said that he's almost Shakespearean in his degree of complexity. Uh, I think uh, Nixon would probably like to agree with that uh, as a bit of self-flattery. But this is what Stanley Cutler has to say about the end of the tapes and the taping system. The last taped conversations apparently occurred on Thursday, July 12, 1973. That night, President Nixon was rushed to Bethesda Naval Hospital and diagnosed with viral pneumonia. The next 72 hours were momentous for his presidency. On Friday, Senate Select Committee staff investigators interviewed Alexander Butterfield, a former White House aide. Butterfield's task was to ensure, quote, the smooth running of the president's day, close quote ushering visitors in and out of the Oval Office, providing talking papers for the president, and often overseeing White House operations during Haldeman's absence. Butterfield was one of the few aware of the tape system. In the early stages of the investigation, U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorney uh, Earl Silbert occasionally requested, quote, electronically gathered data, close quote, in his subpoenas, uh, subpoenas. But after John Dean suggested in his testimony that his conversations might have been taped, Senate investigators routinely queried White House personnel about a taping system. Butterfield, believing he was corroborating what Haldeman already had told the committee, uh, and naturally fearful of perjuring himself, acknowledged that, quote, there is tape in the Oval Office. Butterfield had overseen the installation of the system, located in various White House rooms, telephones, and Camp David. Quote, everything was taped as long as the president was in attendance. There was not so much as a hint that something should not be taped, he told the committee staff. J. Fred Buzzhart confirmed the existence of the system on July 16th. He promptly invoked that most familiar Nixon defense. Everybody did it. But the Secret Service noted that the Nixon administration was unique in using a voice-activated system. On July 23rd, the president rejected requests for copies of the tapes, from both the Senate Select Committee and the Special Prosecutor. And the next day, Assistant Press Secretary Gerald Warren announced that the taping had been discontinued. Meanwhile, the president left the hospital on July 20th, returned to a warm reception at the White House, and said that plans for his resignation, quote, are just plain poppycock. Let the others wallow in Watergate, he added. We are going to do our job. Three months earlier, Nixon had warned Haldeman that the tapes had to be kept secret. Quote, have we got people that are trustworthy on that? Nixon asked. I guess we have, as he answered his own question. With the tapes now public knowledge, 
Howard Baker's famous question to John Dean took on a new thrust. For now, the president himself could reveal what he knew and when he knew it. For the next 13 months, the story of Watergate is a struggle for control of the president's tapes, one that both focused on and heightened the furious political struggle between Nixon and his adversaries. The president consistently asserted constitutional principles in his defense. His opponents, however, insisted that the Constitution could not protect criminal behavior. Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox uh, launched an effort in the courts to gain access, one that resulted in the Saturday Night Massacre in October and his dismissal, along with resignations by Attorney General Elliot Richardson and his deputy, William Ruckelshaus. That event heightened Republican skepticism towards the president, convincing many that he indeed had something to hide. The ensuing firestorm, as Alexander Haig described it, prevented Nixon from achieving his avowed goal of abolishing the special prosecutor's office. Instead, he was forced to name a new prosecutor, this time choosing Leon Jaworski. A former president of the American Bar Association, Jaworski was a conservative Texan and headed the Texas Democrats for Nixon movement in 1972. Yes, there really was such a thing, people. Uh, with those credentials, Jaworski pr proved a much more formidable political force than Cox. After a month on the job, Jaworski visited Haig and suggested that the president should hire a criminal lawyer. Later in October, the president's attorneys went to court and agreed to surrender the tapes to Judge Sirica. Dramatically and firmly, Nixon's lawyer, Charles Allen Wright, said, This president does not defy the law. On October 10, Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned and made a nolo contendere plea to income tax evasion. Within a month, Nixon reluctantly chose Gerald Ford as his vice president. There's some interesting conversations about that on the tapes. Uh, if Agnew had been uh, Nixon's insurance policy against impeachment, Ford now gave the nation's political leaders a viable alternative to the president. October competed with April for Nixon's cruelest month. Little T.S. Eliot reference there. The new year began what the president called the campaign of my life. He vowed not to resign. Instead, he would fight, quote, to use the full power of the president to fight overwhelming forces arrayed against us, close quote. Resignation, he knew, admits guilt. But the president was in full retreat. The first tapes appeared in April 1974, and the reaction was devastating, as diverse forces around the nation denounced the low level of White House conversations or, like Billy Graham, expressed dismay at the dominance of situational ethics. In July, two devastating blows fell upon the president. On July 24th, the Supreme Court ruled in United States v. Nixon that executive privilege was no protection for the subpoenaed tapes. That night, the House impeachment inquiry, launched in October following Cox's dismissal, assembled for a nationally televised debate that resulted in three articles of impeachment against the president on July 26th. <clears throat> on August 6th, following that Supreme Court directive, the White House released new tapes, including the famous, quote, smoking gun conversations, close quote, of June 23rd, 1972, 
that described Nixon's and Haldeman's plans to use the CIA to thwart the FBI investigation. And by the way, for all the people who comment on uh, YouTube, which is the source for my sound clips there that we heard that, I don't show what did Nixon do? What are his crimes? Well, that's one of them. You can't use the CIA to thwart the FBI uh, investigation of criminal wrongdoing in the Oval Office. That's that's wrong. That's a crime. Okay, just so you guys are clear on that one. Um, some people can't quite grasp it. Uh, many crimes. There's a good tangible one to chew on. Uh, that tape had worried Nixon ceaselessly. By his own admission, it could not be excerpted properly. There's a nice euphemism for edited, fixed, changed, erased. Uh, the revelation stunned Nixon's remaining supporters. Charles Wiggins, his chief defender on the House Judiciary Committee, sadly announced that, quote, the magnificent public career of Richard Nixon must be terminated involuntarily. Close quote. Conservative columnist James Kilpatrick lamented, My president is a liar. I wish he were a crook instead. Nixon's last words to Kissinger on these tapes, fight, sums up his political career and above all his desperate battle to retain his office. In his final address to the nation, he said he was not a quitter. But for more than a year, Richard Nixon had envisioned the inevitable. Still, he fought with diminishing congressional and public support with his resources spent and exhausted, and his emotions frayed and worn. Aw. Until he had to choose the option he had derided with scorn and ridicule for two years. He resigned. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? That was the book that Dr. Seuss wrote at the time, and that was a polite statement of pretty much what the entire country was saying to the chief executive uh, at that point. Richard M. Nixon, will you please leave now? Well, we got the blues coming up next. Nothing to flush out the blues like the blues. So uh, let's stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling. Jerry Max right here, gearing to go, and we'll see you next week for another edition of Gray Matters. Okay, we got you, kid. Ready? Hi, I'm Abby Hoffman. On the run, just listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan.